Would you take your Bible, and those of you who have been with us faithfully here during these Sunday mornings, um, we're going to be in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, just picking up where we left off last week. I've, I found this to be a very helpful study for me personally, and I hope it has been a blessing to you. Earlier in our summer, I invited you, church family, to read a little book with me and, and Rob called The Master Plan of Evangelism. This is an old classic by, written by Robert Coleman where he outlines Jesus' approach to life or ministry. And in it, he addresses the question, how did Jesus advance the Great Commission? How did he take this little boy, this little message of there is forgiveness of sins offered through Jesus' death and resurrection, and how was that spread throughout the whole world? And so in that book, he spoke about selection. Jesus identified some men. God's will is not a program, but it's people. And with that, he spent time with them. He lived with them and ate and worked alongside them and drank with them. The next thing we saw is he just kept it very simple. Follow me, and I'll make you disciples or or fishers of men. Just obey what I say. Then he empowered them. He gave them the strength to carry out the instructions he wanted them to do. He said, just follow my example. And we see in the early stages of Jesus' ministry that he did most of the work by himself. He was modeling for his disciples what it looked like to be a follower. And then eventually there was this delegation. All right, I'm sending you out two by two to do the work of the ministry. Then there was this supervision of of seeing how they did it. And Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, was ascended into heaven. And this led to the final stage, which was just reproduction. Now you go out and you reproduce yourselves and others. This morning, I'm excited to bring a passage to you from Acts chapter 20, where we will look at Paul's approach to life, Paul's approach to ministry. In fact, we have a sermon here where Paul is going to preach to the leaders of the church, the elders of the church in Ephesus. And as as best I can understand, this is the only message in the book of Acts that is actually delivered to Christians. So if you've been with us here during the book of Acts study, then you know that this is a book that offers a historical account of the birth of the church. We concluded last week on the verge of a riot there in Ephesus. As Paul is winding up his third missionary journey, he told us in Acts 19 verse 21 that his desire is to go to Jerusalem. And he will go from Jerusalem to Rome. And so the last third of this book has to do with Paul's journey from where he is at to Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with this author's writing, Luke, you know that he also wrote another book, the Gospel of Luke. And in that book, the last third of it is Jesus' journey from Jerusalem, from where he was at to Jerusalem. In fact, John Stott, a Bible teacher, says there's a number of similarities in the book of Acts and Luke as Jesus and Paul set their course for Jerusalem. Like Jesus, Paul traveled with a group of disciples. 
Like Jesus, Paul was opposed by hostile Jews who plotted to take his life. Like Jesus, Paul made three predictions of his sufferings. And like Jesus, Paul declared that he was ready to lay down his own life. And then finally, like Jesus, Paul was determined to finish his ministry and would not be deflected from it. Now, when you came in this morning, hopefully you grabbed the bulletin, and with that, there is an outline. And so let me give you the first point of our passage today, and that is this, launching a farewell tour. As Paul returns to Jerusalem, where the birth of the church took place, what his desire is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 through 4, is to bring an offering. There's a famine there in Jerusalem. And they're looking to bring an offering from all these churches that have been planted. And they want to take it back to Jerusalem. Look with me now at Acts chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Now, what is this uproar? You remember from last week that Paul had spent his time there in Ephesus. And as the gospel message was proclaimed, it was causing a disruption in this city where there was this famous temple to Artemis. It was the temple that is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And because people were not worshiping Jesus, their economy was disrupted. People weren't buying idols, and they, weren't, they weren't, might not be coming to that temple to offer worship anymore because they were now worshiping Jesus. And they were on the verge of a riot at the end of Acts 19. But then we see in the opening verse of chapter 20 that that uproar ceased. Paul goes to Macedonia. This is that region where we have Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. He wants there to go encourage them before he goes back to Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Greece, another way of saying that, is Achaia. This is where the city of Corinth was. Now, is it possible for churches to go through a hard time and have some false teachings and some sinful behavior? The answer is yes, and that's what you had in Corinth. So Paul spends three years there. Now, some have also said it could have been a winter months, and so he was settling down for the winter before he would go on the turbulent seas. Did Paul travel alone? We'll find the answer to that in verse 4. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secidus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. They went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days." we see this group of men that accompanied Paul. And these men represent these churches that have been planted on this missionary journey. And Paul has taken key leaders from them. And he wants all of them to participate in this offering that they will take to Jerusalem. And you will see here in the early churches, a DNA was established of a mission mindset 
These churches could have said, no, we need to keep the leaders for ourselves. Paul said, no, send them out with me. And we're going to participate in this mission offering to take to Jerusalem. And so they were learning early on as a church that they needed to be a giving church. So there's this launching of the farewell tour. Now let me give you the second point of our passage today, and that is sleeping in church. Sleeping in church. It's possible you might not remember anything else from our passage today, but there's going to be some that are going to elbow their dad or their husband or wife, and they're going to say, see, sleeping in church is biblical. So let's read the next six verses here where we get a flair for that. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, and he was taken up dead. See, it's, if you fall asleep in church, can you see what's going to happen to you? <laughs> but ten. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so he departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's just talk about these verses for a moment. We see here a picture of the early church. When did they gather? You see in verse 7, on the first day of the week. That would have been Sunday, our Lord's Day. Our Lord's Day is the day of which we remember our Lord being raised from the dead. Well, when did the Sabbath change? Well, the answer to that is the Sabbath has never changed. The Sabbath is always Saturday. And we see in creation where God created the heavens and the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested. But as we look at the pattern of the early church in the book of Acts, we see that they gathered on the first day of the week. The second thing we see here of the early church is that when they got together, they broke bread a reference to the Lord's Supper where they take bread that represented Jesus' body and, and juice that represented his blood. But in the early church, this likely would have also meant something called a love feast. As they gathered together, they actually had what we call a potluck, bring a dish to pass, and they would eat a meal uh, and supporting some fellowship with one another. The third thing we see here in the early church is that there was preaching. And on this particular day, there was a lot of preaching. You'll see there in verse uh, 8 that this was a prolonged speech. In some cases, Paul stayed in an area for years or maybe months. Here he realized, I'm leaving the next day. So I'm going to jam as much as I can into this one sitting. And the brother preached a long time. There's so much so that with this full belly there was this young man by the name of Eutychus. The word young man in the Greek language refers to one that is between ages 8 and 14. And as he sits there with a full belly, and Paul goes on and on and on, and there are these lamps that are also referred to torches, and these 
He's positioned himself on the third story where there's an open window where he can get some proper ventilation. He gets tired. And I'm telling you, there's some encouragement here for a pastor. Because if Paul could put people to sleep, certainly I will do that as well. My only appeal to you is don't slobber, particularly at this time of year. Don't, Don't have drool coming down your mouth when you sleep during the morning service. And so Eutychus falls into a deep sleep and he falls out of this three-story window and the author of Acts is a physician and he pronounces him dead. Well, that put a halt to the service. And so the preacher comes out and for effect raises him to life. And then do you see what happens there in verse 11? He picked up right where he left off. Okay, now where was I? Yeah, I was telling you about this. And he continued on with his sermon. And he preached throughout the evening. Let's just offer a word about sleeping in the church, shall we? I I can think of a time in my own life where I worked midnight to 8. I went into work at midnight on Saturday night and I finished at 8 in the morning. And I want to tell you something. I'd go home, I'd shower, I'd put my Sunday clothes on, and at 9 o'clock I would arrive and I would teach junior high boys. And then at the 1015 service, I do remember, Pastor Jim, I got drowsy sometimes. (laughs) And I realize that that can happen to us. You might have a child of just newborn, and maybe they're not sleeping through the night, and maybe you don't get much sleep, and maybe you find yourself nodding off on occasion. Maybe you have a condition where you just, you just fall asleep. I will tell you this, I'm glad you're here. And I would say that I realize that there are times where you might be drowsy. I'm actually more concerned, not about people that are physically sleeping in church, but spiritually sleeping in church. A metaphor here where you are sitting here on a Sunday morning or repeated Sunday mornings and you are hearing the word of God proclaimed to you. But you are not waking up. And you, that there's familiarity, there's compromise in your life and it's as if you are in a spiritual slumber. And may God wake you up. Maybe he'll use some events in your life of, of tragedy. How many times have we sat next to someone as they are unpacking a a tragedy that is taking place in their life, perhaps it's a family crisis. Perhaps it's a relationship that has now gone awry, and they say this, it is a wake-up call for me. It says this, I've been been going about life in a slumber. That's actually what I'm more concerned about for you, is that you would spiritually wake up, and that you would have ears to hear what God says. I was thinking about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was one that was a German theologian, a, a pastor during the World War II time. The Nazis did not approve of him. And he had his own little makeshift seminary. And, and he used to teach homiletics or a preaching class. And he made it a practice that no matter how good or bad that student was, when he heard a sermon, he opened his Bible to that passage He had a piece of paper and a pencil, and he took notes to what they said. And the reason for that was, if God's word was being read and taught, it was as if God was speaking to him. And out of respect for God, he wanted to hear what this student had to say. 
You know, that's the reason that I want to provide an outline in your bulletin. I get it. There are times where we get drowsy. And for me, this is helpful to say, where is he at? Let's follow along with him. It was C.S. Lewis speaking of this spiritual slumber that said the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signpost. May God awaken us. May God awaken us. Let me close out this next part here in verse 13 all the way down to 16. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. Now that's a mouthful, but, but let me just explain to you what that says. Paul has preached through the entire evening. I'm not sure how he had a voice that was left. I struggle through two services. And, and they had made arrangements for him to take a boat ride to the next destination. You know what he said? I'll walk. I got a 20-mile walk. I'll walk. Now, I think there's at least two different reasons he would have done that. One, he was going to have an important meeting with the leaders, the elders there in Ephesus, and he wanted to pray. I'm not exactly sure that that's the case. The second reason of which I would support is that I think he was with some guys. He was with some people. And he wanted to prolong this journey as much as he could. And he wanted to hang out with some guys. He wanted to be able to field their questions. He wanted to invest in them and, and pray with them and, and see how he could disciple them on this journey. Verse 14 says, And when he met us at Asos, we took him on a board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samus, and the day after we went to Miletus. For Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Church family, on what day was the church born? What was it? It was Pentecost, right? He wanted to get back on the day of Pentecost, an anniversary day of the birth of the church. A pastor who I appreciate is Sinclair Ferguson. And he offered some conjecture that perhaps this was the 25th anniversary of the church. And he wanted to be there for that. Now that's pure speculation. Now let us get to the final part of Acts 20. And this is the part that I've wanted to get to. Because I think it lays out for us Paul's philosophy, Paul's approach to life. And I'm just calling it saying goodbye to the elders of Ephesus. Look with me at verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come up to him. Now let's pause here for a moment. Because this isn't the first time we've read the word elders in the book of Acts. I don't think it'll be the last as well. What is an elder? You might remember at the beginning of this year, I set for a goal. Let's, let's form a team where we can study this office of elders for ourselves. And over the last few weeks, I've been meeting with Ron Slippy and, and Scott Phillips to study what is the office of elder and what does it do? And is there a possibility that, that there would be a future for us to have elders? And so my, my point this morning is not to just deviate our, our passage just to make a focus on elders, but just say, 
I think there's a possibility later this fall that we might have some Sunday evening services just devoted to offering what we have been learning about this office. In this passage in Acts 20, there are three different words used to describe this elder. In verse 17, the one that you see here is the Greek word presbyterios. That word refers to one who is an old or a wise person. There's a second word that is used to describe the same group of men. It's found in verse 28, and it is the word overseer. The Greek word is the word episkopos. You might have heard the word bishop. Another word is just leader. It is an office of, made up of a plurality of men that oversees a local church. And then we see a third word in the verb form in verse 28, and it is the word pulmonai, or the word shepherd. We offer this expression sometimes to our moms and dads, hey, shepherd your children. We mean care for, provide for them, instruct them. So we see all three of these titles used in this passage that we're about to read. Now here's Paul's philosophy of ministry. Here's his approach to life. Number one, Follow my example. Look with me at verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Like Jesus hung out and assimilated his life with the disciples, Paul himself lived among these Christians. He was not in a church office for 40 hours a week. Rather, he worked with them. He ate and drank with them. And I can remember the church in Thessalonica where he literally stayed with a man named Jason. And I would, I would expect that he stayed with others within the cities where he ministered as well. They had an opportunity to see his life. Now, with that in mind, he says, observe a few things in my life. Look with me at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. Follow my example. You observe my life. The first quality I want to bring to your attention is the one of humility. Well, Paul would write to the church of Corinth and he would say, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why did you boast if you did not receive it? Paul could say to the people there in Ephesus, If there is anything good that you have seen come from my life, it is of the grace of God. It is something that I've received that I'm just passing on to you. He would also say that Jesus said to him in that church of Corinth, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul would say, you observed a lot of weakness in my life. And if there's anything by way of strength, it's through my weakness. There is a tendency, I think, that we see, particularly in young people as they get into the ministry where God uses them and perhaps they preach a wonderful message and God stirs in the hearers. Or perhaps God uses this young person in ministry and, and he is seeing the church grow as a result of this man's leadership. And there is a shift that can take place from God getting the glory to that man getting the glory. And if we're not careful, we can think we're all that. I read this week of a Scottish preacher who had some early success. 
And one day he strolled to the pulpit in self-confidence and flair. And as he began his message, he waxed eloquently, but it was as if the presence of God and the grace of God just lifted from him. And he left him by himself, and he fell flat on his face. He crashed and burned. And he quickly wrapped up his message, and he he just kind of rolled off the platform and slunk down into the pew. And an old wise preacher came up next to him and says, Young man, if you had gone up the way you came down, you would have been able to have come down the way you went up. I don't know if you were sleeping or not during that, but the point is, if you would have went up in humility and your only confidence was in the power of God, you would have been able to come down in the confidence that God used you. George Whitfield was one of the great preachers ever to step foot on American soil. During the late 1700s or so, 1800s, he spoke to crowds of twenty to 25,000 people without amplification. Benjamin Franklin would come and hear him. And, and as he spoke, it was not unusual for someone to come up to him and say, that was an amazing message. To which he was known to reply, I know it. The devil told me that just as I was stepping down from the pulpit. The devil can take the times where we experience some success and say, actually, that was all you. You are really good. God's God's fortunate to have you. But for Paul, he ministered in humility. He not only ministered in humility, look again with me at verse 19 where it says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Now, can we establish this after studying the life of Paul for the last several weeks, that Paul was a man's man. There was a time he walked into a city in Acts 14 and spoke in Lystra. And and they chased him out. They opposed his message and they literally took stones and, and threw him at him and dragged him out of the city to leave him to his death. And he got up and he went right back into town. And in Acts 16 when he cast out a demon from this servant girl, they beat him and they threw him in jail and this left him just to praise the Lord in song throughout the evening. And in Acts 17, he he was in Thessalonica. They chased him out of Thessalonica. He went to Berea. They chased him out of Berea. And then he went to Athens and he, he spoke to this elite group of people and he knew full well that they would not receive his message and some even made fun and mocked him as he shared the gospel. And then we went to Acts 18 in Corinth, and as he preached there, they opposed him in the synagogue, and they brought him for a tribunal. And just last week in Acts 19, he nearly started a riot. So can we agree to you that when he is crying, we ought not to think that he's just overcome as an emotional person. Rather, he is made in the image of God. And he has been about under intense pressure. And as a result, God made men and women to cry. And he, he had emotions from that. I, I appreciate this, that when he went through a difficult time, he was still among the people and they saw that. They were able to follow his example. When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to be mentored by a man that I really looked up to. His name was Al Meredith. 
Uh, he was a, a Ph.D. from Michigan State. Pastored this wonderful church there. And every Friday morning, we would meet at IHOP. And, and uh, he would buy me breakfast, and I'd bring my little tablet, and I would just ask him questions. Every week, I'd say, this is something I'm going to need to know probably in ministry. Can you field this for me? I don't remember anything else that he shared with me, but one particular morning stood out. And you know what it was? Brother Al went on a rant about some Christian community leader. And as he was going off, I thought to myself, my hero is now sinning. I kind of like this, actually. (laughs) And the reason I said that, I don't mean to be twisted or irreverent. It's just that I had put him on such a pedestal that I thought, there's no way that I could ever get to that level. But I was seeing his humanness. And by the end of that rant, he said, Chad, I just got to let you know that these words are really a reflection of my own insecurity and pride in my life, and I need to confess this before God. But I found it really helpful that, that he was transparent before me. And I think that's what we got here in Paul, is that he was hurting, and that led him to crying, but it didn't stop him. And I think people need to see us hurt from time to time. The third thing of his example was not only humility, tears. I'm returning again to verse 19. It says, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. As you've watched me, elders of the church of Ephesus, you've seen that I faced one wave of opposition after another. I go into the synagogue and I know there's a strong possibility that they're going to just kick me out of there. But I continue to go. We just saw earlier in this chapter where they plotted against him in verse 3. This is what took place in his ministry. And if we read through the book of Acts in a very honest way, we can see that if we are genuine followers of Jesus, we will experience opposition. It says there in Acts 14, verse 22, when we had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. And then the the next part that we see as an example here is that Paul was determined. I'm going to skip a few verses. Look with me at verses 22, 23, and 24. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life or any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul saying, I need to get to Jerusalem. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen when I get there, but I do know this. Every time I go to a city, I can, I can expect to be arrested and experience affliction. And I'm going Anyway, I come across this little love note from a young man and his sweetheart that said this, My dear, I would climb the highest mountain, swim the widest stream, cross the burning desire, die at the stake for you. P.S. I will see you on Saturday if it doesn't rain. 
we might say our devotion to God, our devotion to the cause of the gospel is secure. But what we see in Paul's example is a man that was literally willing to lay his life down for the church, to take some offering plates that had been collected in these new churches and to take them to Jerusalem knowing that it might cost him his life. This was the example that he was setting for the leaders, the elders there at Ephesus. And let me give you one more under that example of follow my example, and that's the word motives. You just look at my motives. Look with me at verses 33 through 35. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown that by working hard in the way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. At this time and today, there are people that are, quote, in the ministry to make money. They are false teachers. And Paul is saying, look here, I didn't come asking for money. Look at my hands. There's, there's blisters, there's calluses. These are working man's hands. I came here with the purest of motives that you might not have to go to hell. I've come that you would not feel a burden, a financial burden towards me. And then he says this, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, church family, do you remember those words at all from the Gospels? They're not in the Gospels, are they? Did Jesus actually say those words? Well, I would remind you how John concluded his letter, the Gospel of John. He said, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the word itself could not contain the books that would be written. We're left to conclude that Jesus did say these. There's other things that he said that are not recorded. So the first emphasis on Paul's uh, approach to life is follow my example. I'm not going to ask you to do something that I myself am not willing or have not done. The second thing we see here is follow my teaching. Follow my teaching. And, And this teaching took place in a location of in public and in homes. Look with me at verse 20. It says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching in public from house to house. When Paul came, he preached in the synagogues. He preached in the hall of Tyrannius. We covered that last week. He found any open place he could in public. But it also says here that he preached in people's homes. Years ago on staff, our our staff, Pastor Jim and I, and I think it was Jed, we worked through a book written by a Puritan named Richard Baxter. I think it was in 1659, and it was called The Reformed Pastor. And Richard Baxter wrote a whole book based on chapter 20, verse 20, this emphasis of taking the gospel home to home. He called it a family ministry. And one of the joys of my time here at Highland Crest is when I kind of served as a family minister, I made a list of the families within our church and either had them in our own home or went tried to visit them. 
And I would just ask simple questions of the dad. Dad, how are you leading your wife? How are you discipling your wife? How are you leading your children? How is that going for you? Is there ways that I can help you with that? And that idea really came from Richard Baxter's book, The Reformed Pastor, and he got that idea from Acts 20, verse 20. So there was this location of preaching, public and in homes. The content of the preaching was repentance and faith and the whole counsel of God. Look with me at verse 21. We've been testifying both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God, of faith, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've not shrunk back from preaching this to you. I've been preaching the gospel, how you need to repent and place your faith in him. And then verse 27, he, he said this, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I brought it in a systematic way. I taught it to you. And I don't know of any other way to teach the whole counsel of God than going verse by verse through the Scriptures. Do you think, if we weren't going verse by verse today, that you would have heard a message on sleeping? There's no way in the world, right? If I was just picking out topics, there's no way in the world I would have said, you know what, let's do a... Well, actually, if there were some people that were sleeping regularly, maybe I would have done that. But that's the point of just systematically, verse by verse. This is what Paul is saying. That was his approach. John Stott said, Paul shared all possible truth to all possible people in all possible ways. And then the third thing under this teaching is the manner in which he taught with boldness and tears. He did not shrink back. And then let me read to you what verse 31 says. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. There are times where we need to admonish and correct people. Moms and dads, you see this as you are parenting your children. And if done in love, we don't do it out of impatience or anger. We do it out of concern for that child's heart and soul. And that's what Paul did. He corrected, he admonished, but he did it in tears. There was a pastor, Pastor Dale, said of D.L. Moody that he is the only preacher that I know that is qualified to preach on hell. He said that because every time D.L. Moody preached on hell, he did it with his eyes full of water, out of compassion, of trying to keep people from the flames of hell. And I believe that's exactly what we see here in Paul. He had a burden for the people. Yes, he warned them, but he did it with a tender and compassionate heart. Francis Schaeffer said, If we separate, it must be with tears. And if we speak truth that hurts, it must be with tears. So here's his philosophy. Hey, follow my example. Follow my teaching. I'm going to... Focus on the gospel. I'm going to teach the whole counsel of the word. And then after that, letter C, now apply what you have seen and heard in me. He says in verse 28, pay attention yourself and the flock. Let's look at 28, 29, and 30. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God 
which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So now he's about ready to delegate. You've watched my life. You've heard my teaching. Now you take care of this. And the first thing you need to do is to watch your own life. Because leaders, if you can't lead your own life, you can't lead others. If you can't lead your own wife, if you can't lead your own children, you can't lead in the church. This is what he is saying here. So watch yourself. And and Paul would offer that same thought in 1 Timothy 4.16 when he said, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Shepherd, elders, look closely at your own heart. Then look at the flock of others and protect the church from false teachings. And did you hear what he said? He said to this group of elders, some of that false teaching is going to actually come from some of you. One of my favorite chapters of all the Bible is Psalm 23. I try to meditate on that in the middle of the night and just work through that. I think I was doing that just last night. And in Psalm 23, of this, this metaphor, this picture of, of the Lord being our shepherd, us as sheep, it says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Have you thought about it? Why does a shepherd need a rod? To beat off the animals, the wild animals, right? And I think that's a picture of leaders as well. You are to protect the sheep. You are to beat off the false teachers that are coming. We are to focus on the gospel. We are to focus on the whole counsel of the word. And if we get off track, we need leaders that would help us to get on track. What's taking place here is Paul is taking the reins of the church of Ephesus and he is now offering it to a group of men, a plurality of elders. Now we know enough about church history that there will be one definitive pastor, Timothy. In fact, there's not only the book of Ephesians written to this church, but there is also First and Second Timothy that is written to this church. So Paul is going to be fading away now and he is leading it to Timothy and the elders. Let me just conclude with this last part of Paul's approach to life, and that's this. Paul's approach was driven by intimate relationships. Look with me at 36, 37, 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And when there was much reaping on the part of all, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. And they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now what would have led to these grown men who are saying goodbye to a pastor of three years to to fall apart and to weep and to kiss the brother? I got one word for you. It's love. I thought of this passage this week. Years ago, as we were in Flint, my first year or so, there was a man that pastored, and then he, he led a process where we would become the next pastor and pastor's wife. And as this dear man, Ron Emerling, had his final deacon meeting, 
we were there in his living room and he read this passage of which I've just covered today. And here you had Joe Thompson, a retired plumber. You had Clint Wright, who was a retired General Motors worker. Pat Williams, who was a General Motors retired worker. You had a school teacher over here. And the point is, these burly old men. And then you had Pastor Ron, as he read this passage, tears came down his eyes as he said, I, I've given you guys everything I have. I, I've taught this. I'm handing this off to this young guy here. And there was some emotion there because they had ministered together. And I want to say, as we look at these steps of his approach, that it is done through intimate relationships. I wrote this, as oil is to an engine, so are relationships to ministry. We can't just look at these things and say, I need to somehow put this into practice. It is through close relationships. And the number one priority of your relationships is that of God. When you have prioritized that and you are valuing Him and the Spirit of God is working in your life, these things become natural for you. Years ago, I entered into a covenant with my wife. And I can say to you, I believe with some sincerity today, that I would do absolutely anything for my wife. And I would gladly do it. And I'm sure she will hold me to that, that I just said that today. She'll, she'll play that back for me. But the point is, of, out of a love for her, I would do that. And I would say the same thing for our boys. I would, I would do anything for them. Short of silliness, right? But it's all because of relationship. Do you have a relationship with God? We sang this morning about God's holiness. We are incapable of just entering into a relationship with Him based on our efforts because of our sin. God sent Jesus to die in your place. If you would repent, like we read today, and believe that Jesus died in your place, you may have a relationship with Him. And it is through that you experience His grace, the power of His Spirit, and then you are able to apply the Scriptures in your life. But not only is there a priority with your relationship with God, but there also has to be a a priority over your relationships with others in the church. I'll give you two words. The word is time, and the other word is deliberate. we got to make time to be with one another. If the Lord wills, in September, we'll try to get our, our calendar back to more normal, right? where we can have the Sunday school hour, Bible study hour at 9 o'clock, and we can have all the classes working together at the same time. And Lord willing, around the same time, we'll offer some home Bible studies. And if you're not comfortable getting out, being at church, or being in a home, those of you who are viewing at home, perhaps you would be open to doing a video Bible study with others within the church. We have to get back to just prioritizing our relationships And I think we're all in agreement with that, that there is a void in these last six, seven months because of the pandemic that we've experienced. But I would also use the word deliberate. It's not enough just to get together. We've got to talk Bible. We've got to talk life. People need to see our tears. People need to see that we're going through stuff and, and they're praying for us. We need to have these intimate relationships where you can say, Follow my example. Follow my teaching. You've observed this for a while now. Now you go out and do the very same thing. 
The process that we see here by Paul is the very similar or identical to that of what we see by Christ. It is this approach. Follow my example. Follow my teaching. Now you go out and do the same. Men and women, is your life there right now? Is your relationship with God driving you to put this stuff in place? If not, is there sin that you need to confess of? Do you need some help with that, sorting that out? We would love to come alongside and do our best to help. Have you trusted Christ? What is preventing you from doing that even this morning? As Sharon comes and plays the piano for a, a hymn of invitation, I want to give you some time to just to give some thoughtful contemplation on the passage that we've heard today from Acts 20. And you agree with what God would want you to do, and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord, as we look here again to the book of Acts, we see a man that was acquainted with suffering. And there was a drive within him. And he was an unusual man. And maybe, maybe none of us would be able to copy this, but you have created each of us different with giftedness and talents and experiences. And you've called us to a life that we are to maximize whatever potential you have put in our lives to do it with the remaining years that we have. So would you allow us to do that? May we live a life that is worthy of having others follow our example. May we prioritize the gospel message in the whole counsel of the Bible. May there be a group of people that that we're looking up towards as well as helping along their next chapter of their life and their maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.